Hey, if you guys got your Bibles with you tonight, I want to invite you to open up Ezra, the book of Ezra, and we'll see if we finish it tonight. It's a possibility, but you know how I am. So, it's also a possibility we won't. Oh, We're going to close off the first section of the story. We, we just kind of touched on it a little bit last time, and then we'll go into the second half uh, of the book of Ezra. So, if you want to open up Ezra, we're going to take a look at, uh, at the chapter 6, beginning of chapter 6. Oh, man. I don't have glasses on top of my head, do I? Nope. Never happened to you guys? Glasses on your head? Can't find them? Oh, gosh, my whole world has opened up. Okay, you remember... Their first section, first six chapters deal with the building, the rebuilding of the temple, setting the foundation for worship. The second half of the book deals with reviving the hearts of the people. So we're in the first half of the book. We're just going to close out on it. But you remember the people had come against them, trying to do everything they could to stop them, right? And finally, the prophets rose up. God always, when His people are feeling discouraged at their task, the Lord would bring a prophet. And the prophets would speak the truth of God's Word. And then the people had a choice to make, right? I believe what God's Word says more than I'm afraid. Remember, we've been talking about on Sundays. So so often when we talk about sin, we think about the effect of sin on someone else, somebody we've done wrong to, somebody we've hurt, someone we took advantage of. And I've shared before, those things are sinful, but that's not the root of what sin is. What sin is, is valuing anything else to a a greater, giving it a greater value than God. Devaluing God. Saying, I'm more afraid of what could happen to me in this situation than I am afraid of God. Because the Bible tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And I know everybody wants to comfort you and say, fear God? What? That's a horrible idea. No, I didn't. Have you ever stood before Him before? Well, trust me, the day you stand before Him, you're not going to have a hard time at all with the concept of fearing God. The Bible says, don't fear man. Man can only take your life. God, after your life is taken, has the right to put you in heaven or hell. Fear Him. The idea in that fear is a desire to reverence, honor, glorify. Psalm 37.4 tells us that if we'll delight ourselves in the Lord, He'll give us the desires of our heart. So the call throughout Scripture is that God would have first place in our life. Everybody with me on that? Jesus must have said that a hundred times if He said it once. He said, no man put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. Didn't He say that? So if I put my hand to the plow with Jesus, He says, don't be looking back at what you're leaving. You look ahead. If you're looking back, you're no good for me. Jesus said that, that our earthly relationships... The, the distance between that and our God, our, our love for God and our love for people is so great that the love for people would look like hate in comparison to our love for God. And we talked about it a little bit last night. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the great Shema. The, the Israel would, would quote it over and over still. Jews quote it everywhere. It's, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, Soul, strength. Jesus said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, 
uh, mind and strength. The idea that God would have that preeminent place. But if you're honest, as I am, then you would say, I fall somewhere short of that. Right? I don't quite measure up to God's what God's asking for. Well, then we go to John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, we're told a story, right? You guys remember Peter. What's Peter most famous for? Denying, yeah, that too. But he denied Christ three times, right? He denied Christ before the, before the cock crowed. And so Jesus had told him he would do that. And in John 21, Peter had gone back fishing. He figured God's done with him, right? I let him down. God has a requirement that I'm supposed to love him this much. And I proved I didn't. So then Jesus came to him. And Jesus said to him, Peter, do you agape me? That you love me with utter, total self-sacrifice. The kind of love that God requires of us. And Peter responded and said, Lord, you know I phileo. Agape is here. If you, if you made a chart, agape is the top of love. Phileo is somewhere down near the bottom. So Peter says, I know I'm supposed to love you like this. But I love you like this. And so Jesus said, well, then, you know, if you don't measure up, you're out. Forget it. I'm done with you. I'm sorry. That's not how that story goes, is it? Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Even though you don't measure up, feed my sheep. What Jesus is telling Peter, and one of the things that you and I, if we really grab a hold of the concept, of what it is, it's really going to set us free. What Peter was experiencing in that moment is what we call justification. The Bible says when we are in Christ Jesus, we are just men made perfect. Anybody feel perfect today? But positionally, when I'm in Christ, I'm perfect. And and, and the way I try to to paint that picture for you is, is that Christ is the lens through which God looks when He sees me. If I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm in Christ, the lens of Jesus Christ is over me. So when God looks at me, as far as He's concerned, I'm perfect. Now when I look up from God, I recognize how far I have to go. Justification saves me right where I am. Sanctification doesn't leave me there. It requires me to continually be moving forward, right? I want to try more and more to be like Jesus Christ. I want to be like Him. That's the work of sanctification. That's a lifelong process. I'll be at it until the day I see Him face to face. In which place or which time I'll be glorified, then I will be, there will be no need for the lens. For then this body which is corruptible will put on incorruption. This body that is sinful will put on sinlessness. For the first time, I will have a righteousness given to me by Jesus Christ that I don't have to battle for when I see Him in heaven. But in the meantime, we're in that place of justification. Right? If you you think about it, right? Romans chapter 7, Paul's a pretty solid guy. But Romans chapter 7, what's he say? All the things I know I should do, I don't do. The things I'm not supposed to do, I keep doing those things. Who's going to save me? My body keeps doing dumb things. But then he says, it's Jesus Christ who what? Covers me. He makes me clean. That's that justification. God wants us to love Him. Now, 
If we're honest, we all fall short of that love that He requires. But prayerfully, if we're honest, we're constantly moving toward that. John 21, you know the last thing Jesus told Peter? Peter said, I can't do it, Lord. I I fall short all the time. The last thing he told him was, one day, Peter, you'll do it. You didn't catch that part? It's verse 18. When Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. Say, Peter, when you were young, you went where you wanted to go. But one day, men are going to stretch out your arms and take you where you don't want to go. And the Bible says he told him this about the way he was going to die. When Peter was facing his own possible death and asked if he knew the man, Jesus Christ, what did he do? He denied him, right? And when he denied him, what was he declaring? I'm more afraid of this servant girl and these people around this fire than I care about God. But Jesus, in encouraging him, said to him, One day, Peter, when they ask you, you're going to say it. And they're going to crucify you for it. Now, for me, as a guy, and a lot of other guys, the idea that at that moment of truth, when it's going to cost me everything, and I'll be able at that moment to say, I believe. I put my, I'm in, I'm in his camp. That's kind of an important thing for me. That was an important thing for Peter. Peter, you're not there yet, but you're going to get there. You get what I'm saying? We are not there yet, but we're going to get there. We just got to keep moving toward Him, right? Keep growing, keep learning, keep applying God's Word. And the same thing's true of these guys that are here. They're building, and they're working, and they're trying to establish the center of worship. They're trying to build a whole country again that hasn't existed for 70 years. And everybody's coming against them. But the prophets come, and they give them the Word of God. And what does the Word of God do? It increases our faith, right? That's what the Word says. The Bible says faith comes how? And hearing what? The Word of God. So, hearing the Word of God, spending time in God's Word increases my faith. And all of a sudden, when these guys are told to stop, before <clears throat> what we were looking at before in chapter 5, they're like, no, we're not going to stop. And then the guys say, well, what are your names? And they said, we're servants of the Most High God. No, tell me your name. No, I don't want to tell you my name. We're working. Go away. So those guys write a letter to the king. Remember, the the Medo-Persian king at the time was a guy we know, Darius, right? Remember his name? Him and Daniel were buddies. They write to Darius, and I told you last time, chapter 6, look what it says. King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives of the treasuries that were stored in Babylon, and at Achmetha, in the palace in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it, uh, a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be built. The place where they offer sacrifice, let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits. Its width, 60 cubits. With three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. So now all of a sudden, those people who are trying to stop them, the local government, now they're getting a, a letter from King Darius, and King Darius is saying, uh, not only do you need to let them go and let them build, but you guys are paying for it. 
Yeah. You guys, you guys are, are footing the bill. Look, we go down to verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar, Bozni, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. In other words, stay away from those guys who are trying to rebuild. Let the work of the house of God alone. So what they were trying to do was stop it. And what God did through the encouragement of the prophets, He fulfilled in the politics of the region. So that first group of guys, 50,000 who went back into Israel, they're going to get the job done. They're going to build it. They're going to make it happen. He says in verse 8, Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you will do for the elders of these Jews. Oh, they should have never wrote that letter, huh? For the building of the house of God, let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. So they're trying to stop them. And what ends up happening is they get more work having to go collect taxes from the region to pay for the work that's being done at the temple. Chuck Smith used to always say, had this, this saying, he said, where God guides, he provides. He's, God's got a way of opening doors. You can't imagine being open, but somehow they open. These guys can't imagine. All they're doing is being faithful to what God, what God told them, right? God told us to build. We're going to build. Even if these guys are coming against us, we're going to hold on to His Word and we're going to do it. And then the Word comes down. God covers the expenses. Gets all those people who are pestering them to start being a part of the solution. Go all the way down to verse 13. It says, Then Tatane, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozni, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, according to the command of Cyrus, of Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is the sixth year, of the reign of Darius. So, that means it took him 21 years to finish the job. That's a long time, right? 21 years laboring to build something. And and a lot of those guys aren't going to get a chance to see the fruition of their labor. They're going to see the, the house built, but they're not going to see the revival in the people. Their responsibility was, was to build. It's not always within our ability to see the whole plan of God fulfilled in our lifetimes. The question that God would ask you, that He asked me, that He asked Peter, after He told Peter how he was going to die, you know what Jesus said to him? So Peter, come follow me. And Peter's walking behind Jesus and he looks over at John. And he says, well, what about him? I'm going to be crucified. What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, what's that to you? If I want him to live until I return... You gotta make a decision, Peter. You come and follow me. Will you come and follow me? That's, that's the question, man. Sometimes there are, are people we see, maybe we look at their ministries or the things they're able to do, and we wish somehow that we could have been a part of that. But maybe that's not the place God's called us or where He's directed us or the plan that He has for us. What God wants to know is will you follow Him? You. 
Will you do what He's asking you to do? Whether or not you see a lot of fruit, pray you're not Jeremiah. Pray you're not Noah. Noah preached, not Noe, Noah. Noah preached for 120 years. Nobody listened. Jeremiah prophesied to the nation of Israel before this captivity, and nobody would listen to a word he said. And the day they hauled them all away, many people today put the Bible verse that Jeremiah spoke to the people on their refrigerator. Right? For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah. Heartbreak. One point in Jeremiah's ministry, he said, forget this. Forget it. I'm done. Nobody ever listens anyway. I don't want to tell them no more. I'm tired of telling people over and over again the same thing and they don't listen. And, you know, he withdrew to his little retirement spot. Alongside a river, he pulled out his rocking chair. He set it up, put his feet up. He didn't stay there very long. He says, I, I can't stop. My bones inside of me are burning. i got to speak God's word. The question is still to God's people, will you follow me? What if I call you to do something you don't understand? What if I ask you to do something that don't make no sense? Will you come and follow me? No matter what it costs. No matter the price. Well, these guys... Get the temple done. Verse 16, the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God. A hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs. And then as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it was written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. So they're keeping the Passover. They're, they're following the sacrifices for the priests and the Levites who purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Now I want you to hear that. They all separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Did you catch it that time? They separated themselves. They left themselves separate so that they wouldn't be stained by the nations around them. Remember, that was part of the problem while the nation came tumbling down. So they got good intentions, don't they? They're doing good. Worship is happening. People are separating themselves. They kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now, right there, if you want to go chronologically, you would open up your Bibles to the book of Esther. 
And you'd read the story of Esther because it happens right there. Back in Persia, where the rest of the people are, there's a move of the nation to wipe them all out, to wipe out all the Jews. And Esther saves her people. Also, from chapter 6 to chapter 7, nearly 60 years go by. 60 years, a long time. We could say at least a generation, right? A generation has passed. When we come to chapter 7, it says, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abushua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron was chief priest. So now we come to the guy who's credited with writing First and Second Chronicles and the book of Ezra. He is a scribe of scribes. We're going to see. The Bible's going to talk about all his giftings, the things he, he's able to do in the Word of God. Now, many of you are familiar with the longest psalm, right? What's the longest psalm? Yeah, not 19 short, brother. It's like seven verses. One, 19, a lot of historians believe is written by Ezra. Ezra had an incredible love for God's Word, for teaching God's Word. Ezra has come through the the story of Esther. You guys with me? And the close call that that was. And Artaxerxes is going to send him now to Jerusalem. He wants to go because he's, he's learned all this stuff about God's Word and he wants to go teach. He wants to share what he's, what he's learned. He wants to go be a part of, of, of refounding the nation again. So, so here in chapter 7, they, they put together uh, the group. Look, it says in verse 6, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. You're going to hear that six times in this next section. Six times that phrase, according to the hand of the Lord, his God, upon him. Because everything that happens to Ezra is orchestrated by God. God begins to work in his heart. Remember, delight yourself in the Lord, and what will he do? Give you the desires of your heart. That means, when I make the focus of my love and desire the Lord, when I try to be most satisfied of all the things that can satisfy us on earth, when I try to be most satisfied with the Lord, then He reaches into my heart and He puts desires in there. He puts a desire. And He says, Ezra, I want you to go teach people. He says, Paul, I want you to go to Macedonia. He says, Philip, I want you to go to Samaria. He says, Stephen, I want you to go witness to that guy right over there. Now, some of those guys, the thing God asked them to do turned out good. Some of the guys, the thing God asked them to do turned out to be painful. But it doesn't change it from being what God wanted in their life, right? 
God placed a desire in Ezra's heart. According to the hand of the Lord that was upon him. Look what it says in verse 7. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, they came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So this is the group Ezra's going to lead. That group of guys. So Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. Now on the first day of the first month, so, so that gave you an overview. Ezra's coming, he's going to bring all these guys. Now back up. Now that now we're backing up to the beginning. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. It took him five months to walk from Babylon to Jerusalem. 1,500 guys are in the company. 1,500 men... And I'm sure some women and children were along, so the, that group may be double that size, maybe three times that size when you, when you get down to the totals. Without a king's escort, carrying the equivalence in today's market of five million dollars. Pretty crazy, huh? See, the king's gonna give Ezra over five million dollars to go and offer sacrifices to God and to praise His name. Because, well, King Artaxerxes has a wife. You remember her name, don't you? Esther? For such a time as this? Interesting, isn't it, how the stories come together? Well, look, it says... Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, what is it that that the Lord tells us when we when we go back? What is it that that God's purpose and plan for us? Let's flip back to Deuteronomy chapter six. Just go back there. I quote it all the time, but but I want you guys to see a little bit more of it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will love Chesed. The Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Utter, complete devotion, right? And these words which I command you today will be in your heart. And you will teach them diligently to your children. When? And you will talk about them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. When you lie down. When you rise up. You will bind them as a sign on your hand. And they will be as frontlets or headlights before your eyes. And you will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God wanted His people to be into His Word. And listen, the cool thing is, look, ah, it's, it's amazing. But if you love God, that happens. Right? I was telling the guys last night, when I was in boot camp, probably the second night, because you don't get to sleep the first night. I'm not sure we got to sleep the first week. So maybe it was the second week. And the second week of uh, uh, boot camp, and, I, and I'm laying there at night, and I'm thinking, Dear God, what did I do? There are people screaming at me. You cannot believe the things they're calling me. What am I doing here? And the life was kind of crazy. Weird things, you know, and and every night we would have mail call, and every night I would sit on my haunches just waiting 
hoping that Kathy wrote a letter. And if Kathy wrote a letter, I would read it. If she didn't send a letter, I would read one of her old letters. In fact, I still got them. Every letter I wrote her, the letters she wrote me, they're in a little box. I don't know if we can ever find it. Every time we look for it, we can't find it. And then when we don't need it, we knock it over and spill it everywhere. So, but we have those letters still. They were, they were treasures for me. Because I loved her, I wanted to hear what she had to say. What was happening. What she thought about things. See, it ain't no different. If, if I love God, I want to hear his thoughts. I want to know about him. I want to know what he's saying, what he's thinking, what he's doing. I want his word. And then not only do I want his word, but C.S. Lewis said, whatever you love, you praise. Everywhere I went, when we were sitting around, a bunch of us Marines in boot camp sitting around, and we'd talk about which one of us had the greatest girl back home. And I'd be like, no, man. Look, your, your girlfriends are nice and all, but compared to Kathy, ah, they're nothing. They're, don't even... Don't even try to talk because yeah, she's the greatest of all. And we'd all tell all the different reasons why we loved our, our girlfriends back home and what they meant to us. What I loved, I praise. The same thing happens in a relationship with, with the Lord God. If I love God, I can't stop telling people about Him. I'm like, man, you got to meet God. You don't, you don't even know what you're missing out on. You know the, the things that God's done for you and how He loves you and, and cares for you. And that natural, I don't have to make it happen. What you love, you praise. Right? During football season, everybody who loves their favorite team got a favorite jersey they wear, don't they? They don't have no problem. I know you do. They don't have no problem praising what they love. If we love God, we'll praise Him, right? That's going to pour out. So this is where the heart of Ezra is, man. He's fallen in love with God's Word. And he wants to share God's word. He wants to teach God's word. And God's led him to go back to Israel to do it. So here's a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. Expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. He's going to give uh, the freedom to anybody who wants. Now keep in mind what just happened. All the people there tried to wipe out the Jews, right? And the only way in the book of Esther that they were over, they didn't overturn the law. What did they do? All they did is give the Jews right to defend themselves. So there was like a little civil war that took place, but the Jews were able to defend themselves and save themselves. And now the opportunity is given by the will of God to all those people. And there are are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews in Babylon. You guys can all go home. You don't got to stay here. Anybody who wants to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But if you want to go home, you can all go home. You can all go back. Whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. So he's sending Ezra to teach them the word. The king of a Medo-Persian empire is sending him to go teach the word of God. 
And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, how much gold do you think that is? Well, it's a lot. Along with the free will offering of the people and the priests are to be freely offered in the house of the God in Jerusalem. Now therefore be careful. Buy with this money bulls and rams and lambs and grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of the God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your people to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do according to the will of your God. Remember how much I could tell you they gave him? Five million dollars. Five million. Look, down in verse 22, it says up, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, salt without prescribed limit. Literally, he's given away four tons of silver. 600 gallons of wine and oil. That's a lot of stuff, man, that the king of Babylon is pouring out on him. He says in verse 23, Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently, or let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So you get the, the king is saying, when you go back, you make this offering, do it in my name. And pray for me, so that there be peace between the God of heaven and the king. That's pretty wild. Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any priest, Levite, singer, gatekeeper, Nethanim, or servants of the house of God. That's the first tax break for anybody in ministry. First one, right there. It's unlawful that they shall pay any taxes. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. I, I pay taxes, but not as much as others, so there's a break at least. But the point, you Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, you set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who don't know them. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. So he's got like carte blanche from the king of the world when he goes back to Jerusalem, to the temple. So he says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. It's already built. He sends a five million and all that gold and all that stuff just to beautify it. Just to beautify the house of God. It's kind of cool. <clears throat> and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. God's hand right there with him. God's hand upon him. God's hand leading him. Look, we talk about the Psalms. Just, just hang a right in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You know when I lay down and when I get up in the morning. You understand, you guys know how when people call you and catch you asleep and they ask you that question? Were you sleeping? What's everybody do? You all lie? 
Man, I do too. I, before I even think, before I even think, and it's pretty, it's fairly obvious because when I catch somebody else, you know, I'm like, I'm pretty sure because I can hear the sleep in your throat, man. Oh, did I wake you up? Oh, no, no, no. I always talk like this. <laughs> For me, I've been snoring all night in my throat, really, in the morning, man. It don't hardly work at all. But he says, the Lord knows. You can't lie to God. He knows when you went to bed and when you got up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You, you, he knows the things we think before we think them. You comprehend or you understand my path and my lying down. The basic understanding in that, you, you comprehend my path. That's like, you guys know the poem, Footsteps? And like the footprints in the sand, that's what he's saying. You comprehend my path. You understand where my life is going and when it's going to stop. So God holds our breath in his hand, right? I I don't believe it's random. God created each one of us with a time frame. And the time comes. He says, you understand, you comprehend my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways, everything I do. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. And what's that next part? And laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Everywhere Ezra goes, he's talking about God's hand is on me. God's hand is here. He's, he's leading. He's got a hedge around me. He's, it, it, when I delight in the Lord, guys, God's going to take me the path I need to go on. When we look at the 23rd Psalm, what's the 23rd Psalm say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But He leads us sometimes places we don't want to go, right? He leads me beside still waters. That sounds kind of cool, right? But when you get to the yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that sounds less cool. But all of it is part of the path that God comprehends for us. Nobody comes through this world with, without no scars. No, but God never promised us scar-free existence. We started broken. And we're going to pick up more brokenness along the way. But He's the one who mends us. He's the one who makes us whole. He's the one who puts us all back together. He lays His hand on us. I love that phrase. And I just wanted to to share that with you out of Psalm 139. One of my my favorite psalms. But as we we look at back where where Ezra is, is, is... laying out the, the, the things that God has done for him, I was encouraged because the hand of the Lord was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go with me. And then he, he lays out all the names. Now, I don't want to wipe you guys out. So we did nine chapters of genealogy when we started First Chronicles. And the, I almost lost everybody. So I don't spend as much time on genealogies no more. But this first group from chapter 8, uh, down through verse 14, tells us that there are 1,500 men who respond to the call of the ordinance of the king, saying whoever wants to go home can go home. Now I would say probably at that time in Babylon, 50,000-ish, maybe a little more than 50,000, 
went there. Seventy years of captivity. Um, gosh, there could be four or five times that many. Maybe there's a couple hundred thousand there now. Maybe three hundred thousand, fifteen hundred ago. Fifteen hundred. Whosoever will can answer the call, right? The Bible says that the, the invitations have gone out to everyone. Doesn't it? Jesus tells the parable. He said, the invitations went out. Highways, byways, every poor guy, every guy standing in the, off the road, living in a tent, wherever they were, the invitations went. But not everybody came to the feast, did they? In the same way we see salvation work today, God won't force you to go. All those people who decided to stay just about all got wiped out in the story of Esther, right? And God delivered them. But He didn't deliver them, I don't think, to leave them in Babylon. I think He delivered them to tell them, I'm with you. Now go. But they didn't want to leave. I mean, they just finally got their dream house. Or they just finally got all the livestock that they really were after. They finally got that perfect business opportunity. Things are really clicking now. So they didn't go. 1500, Scripture tells in chapter 8, 1 through 14. But look at verse 15. It says, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava. The, the river Ahava outside of, of Babylon. So he gathers the people and he stages them. So that he got 1,500 men. Like I said, there could be three times that many between uh, women and children that were going with him. Plus, you know, uh, all the gold and silver and 600 gallons. Can you imagine of of wine and oil that you got to carry. So they got all this stuff and he's staging it. And it says, as Ezra is staging all that stuff, look what it says. I gathered them by the, the river that flows to Ahava and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and not one person of the tribe of Levi was there. Now who was the tribe of Levi? That's the priesthood, right? And what was it that God had charged the tribe of Levi to do? Teach the people the word. And what was Ezra going to do? Teach the people the word. And he looks around and says, no priest came. None. So what happens in the next couple of verses is a draft. The draft. Look at what Ezra does. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shimei, Elnathan, Jarib, uh, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Mushalam, leaders, also for Joy Rib and, and El Nathan, men of understanding. He says, he drafts almost 300 Levites. The next several verses, all the way down through 20, talk about all the Levites he drafts. He, first he, he gave them the opportunity to come, and then he's, you know, because he's of the tribe of Levi, he's like, hey guys, guys, what's up, man? I'm not going to be the only one. So you're going, you're going, you're going. He's got a letter from the king, right? So he can kind of do that. So he gathers up those those people. Sometimes when we don't heed the call, when God's calling us or directing us to a work of God, he's got a way of prodding. You ever seen fellas move cattle that don't want to move? Yeah, anybody seen that electric prod? It's It's unkind, isn't it? Now, I don't know a lot about the electric prod and cattle. I know more about the electric prod and high school boys than I know 
about cattle. When I was in high school, I have no idea why, because as far as I know, there was no cows in California. But we, somebody brought a cattle prod to, and give it to one of the guys in the football team locker room. And there were people bouncing off of lockers and busting heads right and left. And some guy running around and cattle prodding people. And I'll tell you, you may stand there and say, look, you put that on me. I'm not moving. But you know better, don't you? <laughs> if you put that on me, I'm, I'm moving with purpose right now. And sometimes when, when God is moving, especially for the people that God has specifically called to teach the word, he will get the cattle prod. So Jackie, you're crazy. You heard of Elijah the prophet, right? So when Elijah the prophet wanted to quit, God just say, okay? All right, Elijah. Cool. Nope, he met him in a cave, didn't he? And he said to him, what are you doing here? You got a job to do, brother. I I I called you, so I, I, I'm going to talk nice for a while, and then I'm going to get the cattle prod. When he when Moses come to the burning bush, God had a, a job for him, right? And remember how Moses kept saying, "I can't go, I can't go, I can't go." God got his attention, didn't he? Over and over and over again, you see there are times where God will get the attention of those people for whom He has very specifically called. For others, He says, "Hey." You want to go and be a part of the blessing? Go. If you don't want to be a part of the blessing, stay home and and miss out on the opportunity. But for those who were called, and the Levites were called, Ezra drafted them. He pulled them in. He got them over to be a part of it. You see, he lists them out for you there in verse 16 through verse 20. So when we go to verse 21, it says, Then, this is kind of cool, verse 21. You probably won't get past this, so I didn't finish. Then I proclaimed the fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him, listen to this, because this is such a cool verse, to seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So now He got everybody. Everybody's together. He's got them all at the staging point to go. It's a five-month journey. They're going with $5 million worth of stuff. How many of the thieves in the area you think knew about it? Yeah, come on. You know everybody. Every, everybody who ever robbed somebody knew that them guys were taken off with a boatload of cash. And they're, they all made plans. And we'll read about it in a second. So Ezra gathers everybody together. And then he proclaims a fast. And the purpose of the fast is that they might understand the way God wants them to go. So they'd be safe. So their children would be safe. And so that the stuff they were carrying back for the temple would make it there. So they did a fast. I love that. I love it. The Bible talks about a lot of disciplines that that Jesus also talks about that... For one reason or another, we allow to kind of fade out of existence. You know what I mean? I mean, I know there's a lot of places talking. We've done several fasts here. and We'll do several more fasts. But there's a lot of people who, who, who go through their whole Christian existence and never experience 
just being obedient to what God says, even if it doesn't make any sense to you. Really, the part about it making sense to you is not all that important, is it? Otherwise, you'd have never marched around Jericho, right? You'd have been looking for dynamite somewhere. <coughs> Blow them walls up. So, he proclaims a fast. Let me, let me just briefly talk about the purpose of the fast. There are three things when we fast that God accomplishes us in us. Uh, the first one is He brings us into a place of agreement with His will. Now the picture of that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Jesus praying to the Father, just simply agreeing with God's purpose and plan, where He's going. That coming to agreement with God's will for our life. God's will for a situation. It's important because most of the time, we spend our time battling our will versus God's will, right? Well, God, my plan's really good. And I really wish you'd take my plan. When we fast, it provides us with that opportunity, not because we're hungry. Uh, the hunger and the food has nothing to do with it. The fasting presents us with opportunity to, to stop focusing on the physical and focus more time and energy on the spiritual. That's the whole purpose. If you don't do that, the fast is a waste. So you, you, you cut out time that you spend on physical, and that time you pour into seeking God spiritually. And I want to be in agreement with God's will. Now, if I'm in agreement with God's will, there's a lot of things I don't have to wonder about, isn't there? People, when they're looking for God's will, always want to start with some crazy ideal. Let me make it simple for you. God, am I loving you like you want me to? No? Well, I know it's your will that I do. So when I start a fast, usually that's where I start. God, help me love you more. I need to love you more. Forgive me that, I'm, that I don't. Help me you know, reach that place. I want to work my way through the fast coming into agreement with God's will. And instead of worrying about the things I don't know, i got big enough problems with the things I do. You know what I mean? God, help me love my wife like Christ loved a church. Help me not to be focused on self. Philippians chapter 2. Help me not to have selfish ambitions, but let me have the mind of Christ. I want to have the mind that Jesus has. There's so many things in the Word of God that tell us God's will. Instead of worrying about what you don't understand, I just focus on what I do. And I want to bring myself into agreement. You're right, God. These things are right and good. And I, I struggle. God's not upset about that. God's not bummed that we struggle. What God wants to know is, you agree with me? Because if two people agree, then we can go on together. If we don't agree, we we got to stay here until we do. The second thing he does in that fast is he brings us into a place of alignment. Alignment. He starts to reveal to me in the during the fast and as I'm praying and as I'm seeking him, he starts to reveal to me uh, these are problems. <laughs> here's a thing in your life you really need to consider cutting that out, or. Here's a struggle that you're struggling with and I want you to to face up and deal with or repent or whatever. Which brings me into alignment with His will and His word. 
what His Word says. I should line up with what His Word says. I should be able to take my life and take the Word of God and line them up and we're going in the same direction. There may be bumps and bruises along the way, but the fast brings us into alignment. And the third thing the fast does is it shows us our assignment. What do you want me to do? That's what they're doing in Ezra. He takes the time to fast and he says, we want to make sure our little ones are safe. I was challenged this week because this same uh, chapter, I heard a, a preacher talking about this and he said, he said, have we fasted for the unborn? Because Ezra fasted for the safety of his little ones. That they'd be okay. And we get so focused on so many other things. And maybe some of them are good and maybe some of them aren't. But we forget some of the disciplines God's laid out for us in His Word and said, Here, why don't you do this? Remember when the disciples couldn't cast out or heal the boy? That boy with epilepsy, they couldn't, they couldn't take care of the deal? And Jesus said, when they came to Jesus, after Jesus healed them, they said, how come we couldn't do it? And I said, because you don't believe. Unbelief was the problem. And then Jesus said, and this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And we think he's talking about the demon. And I don't think he is. I think he's talking about the unbelief. In me. That God takes that out. Agreement. Alignment. Assignment. That's what they're doing at that place, man. They gathered together and they said, man, we got to know what God wants us to do. We're carrying $5 million. Verse 22, he says, I was ashamed. I don't want to go to the king to request an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us with the enemy on the road. Because we told the king... The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him. But the power and His wrath are on all those who forsake Him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and He answered our prayer. Doesn't tell us the answer. Next couple of verses it says, So they separated twelve of the leaders of the priests, uh, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, the articles, the offering of the house of God, um, <clears throat> which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. And I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. They belong to God. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your Father. So you watch them and you keep them until we get to Jerusalem and weigh them there. That's exactly what Jesus said. There are things that Jesus gives us that we're going to give an account for. Right? He gives us responsibility. He gives us talents. He gives us minus. He gives us responsibilities for the journey. And He says, well, when you get there, 
I'm going to weigh them. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us the gold, silver, precious gems, the things we've done for the Lord, that lasts. The wood, hand, stubble, what happens to it? Gone. But there's a day of reckoning. Just like a day of reckoning for these guys. That's a lot of money he just gave them. Five-month journey. He says, when we get there, we're going to weigh it. This is not yours. You're carrying this for God. You realize your children are not yours? You're carrying them for God. And we're accountable for how we do it. You realize your wife is not yours? You are accountable for her to God. Over and over in the scripture, there are responsibilities for which God gives us. And here we see the same thing. Watch and keep them until we weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of God. And we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. God took care of them. He got them there safe. They just followed Him. It wasn't a safe journey. The people back in Babylon were saying, What are you doing going on that journey? It ain't safe. It ain't a safe place to take your kids. Kathy and I have some friends. I guess maybe friends is too strong. People we know. Acquaintances. They came and visited us once. Maybe that counts as friends. I don't know. But they, they had... Kathy know exactly. I want to say four small kids. And God spoke to them and said, I want you to go to Afghanistan. And they said, All right. And I remember thinking, That is the craziest thing I ever heard of. You can't go to Afghanistan as a missionary. You know that, right? It's illegal. They'll kill you. There's no trial. They just drag your body through the street. You can't stand on the corner and preach. They became a part of underground church. And I want to say they were there for seven years. In Afghanistan. Reaching souls for Christ. And everybody was okay. God knows how to take care of his people. But if you ask them, they tell you that even if they weren't okay, they still would have went. What do you mean you still would have went? And we were all dead before we went. We signed up for the trip. We're already dead. We're in God's hands. We died to ourselves, And we were alive to Him. And He can do what he wants to do with us. They run a Christian school in Yucca Valley now. Crazy how things go. 
God called didn't make no sense. God did a great work. Everybody's story is not like that. Sometimes people go and it's only tragedy. Does that mean God didn't call them? We, he says, I comprehend your path. Everybody's path not the same. Some of us headed for heartache. It's okay. It's okay. It's God's purpose. It's God's plan. If you answer the call for the Lord God Almighty, you need to die before you go. Because whosoever clings to his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. It's powerful, man. So they came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, son of Phinehas, and they were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, Noadiah, the son of Benui, and the number and the weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. And they got there. They had their day of reckoning, accounting. And it all got there. God brought them through. Brought it all there. Look, there's a lot of stuff in Ezra still to come. And there's a lot of stuff we're going to scratch our heads on next week. But when we look at it, I think part of the bottom line is, you cannot give God too much. can't give Him too much. You can't give Him too much of your time. You can't give Him too much of your life. You can't give Him too much of your family. You can't give Him too much. You can't. Jesus had Peter come to Him. Remember Jesus saying about people forsaking all. And Peter saying, Lord, we gave up everything for You. What's going to happen to us? Jesus said, no man gives up home, father, mother, brother, sister, wife. No man gives up that stuff without receiving a hundred times here on earth and eternal life in heaven. God's got a plan and a purpose and having him Chief, that's the best place for him to be. Amen?